and welcome to the first head-to-head -head episode of 2022. I'm Kathleen Gallagher, Futures Editor at Investment Week. Volatile markets have led to a painful start of the year for several stock pickers, and there is much discussion over whether we are finally in the pivot from growth investing to value investing. At the center of this debate is technology stocks. Figures show that while the S&P 500 is down 5.5% from the start of the year until the 4th of February, the NASDAQ 100 technology sector is down 12.3%. And the big names, like Facebook's owner Meta, which saw $230 billion wiped from its market value in a single day, and Netflix, are causing some of the biggest disruptions. So is it time to give up on the tech growth narrative? And what does this mean for the wider market? We've got Brandon Ladoff, fund manager at Poland Capital, and Tatiana Puhan, CEO at Tobalm, to discuss. Hello and welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, do you want to introduce yourselves, Tatiana? Yes, hello, I'm Tatiana. I'm um, Deputy CEO of uh, Tobam. We're a quantitative um, investment manager and um, our main strategy is to maximize diversification. And um, yes, and so in my position, I'm responsible for our research and portfolio management. Brilliant, and Brandon? Hi, I'm Brandon Ladoff, a portfolio manager and analyst at Poland Capital. I'm in my 10th year at the firm now. And at Poland Capital, our entire mission is to think about how to preserve client assets first and foremost, and then also think about how to grow that capital over time. And we've always felt the best way to approach that is to carefully study the businesses that we end up investing in and only invest in those companies that we think have very unique value propositions in terms of the products and services they offer their customers, and then have very strong competitive advantages in place that can allow those value propositions to endure over long periods. And there are other characteristics we need to see in businesses as well, such as real financial strength. So um, we take a very careful approach to analysis and, and only invest in those companies that we think meet that profile. Brilliant, cool. Um... So our, our topic of conversation to today is very um, topical. So we're talking about the tech stocks. They've had quite a ride um, for the beginning of the year. So I guess to start off, what do you think is driving that volatility and why are we seeing some of these dramatic downfalls? Um, Tatiana, do you mind kicking us off on this? Yeah, I think we are at some sort of, you know, inflection point in the market. So um, on the one side, you know, I think um, investors feel, um, you know, there's, a strong probability that you know we will see eventually some rate hikes, and this is obviously going to um, you know make them reevaluate their um, their growth perspective uh, perspectives that they had you know on those companies, um, and in particular you know on the tech sector you know that has experienced um, an extreme growth over the last um, five to ten years. Um, but what is also important to see is is that um, you know whenever we are in inflection points. Um, and uncertainty is higher, um, then you know investors they tend to um, they tend to look out for other investment opportunities than the ones that, that they favored earlier, and so this might make them actually move you know into new directions. Great, and Brandon, would you agree with those? Do you think anything else is influencing this? Yeah, I mean, first I would say that we've been investing the same way at Poland since uh, the late eighties, nineteen eighties. And we've seen many periods where over short periods of time, the market sentiment can change quite dramatically in one direction or the other, 
And we always like to remind ourselves that in short periods of time, the market is simply a voting machine. And it can be any sort of narrative that can push markets potentially dramatically in either direction. And it might have very little to do with the underlying fundamentals of companies in the market, or at least certain companies in the market that are being affected. This time around, we think um, so far in 2022, some of the market volatility that we've seen is based on the fact that we went through a very unique event for all of us in COVID-19. And as a result of COVID, for many of us, our behaviors changed in certain ways. In many cases, behaviors that had already started, we believe, were accelerated. So if you think about what happened in areas such as digital payments and e-commerce and gaming and digital advertising, streaming video, communication software, so many different types of behaviors and so many different types of products and services that we were already beginning to engage more as a, a population and a society, a lot of that was accelerated as a result of, of COVID-19. And many in the market believed that the growth in these types of products and services and the growth of, or the continued strength in our behaviors with respect to these types of products and services might continue to grow in a linear fashion. And now, as a result of certain things that have happened more recently, I think we're seeing that it might not actually play out exactly that way. We think all of the areas of the market that I listed out do have strong secular tailwinds and will grow over longer periods. But now we're seeing that it might not just be constant linear growth forever. So in areas like e-commerce um, and gaming and digital marketing, there are certain dynamics at work, such as how people are um, now leaving the home more often, et cetera, that might be causing a, a, a pause in some of this, this purchasing and some of these behaviors. And some of that could be magnified by other dynamics that we're seeing in, in the market, such as inflation and how monetary policy might be changing, as Tatiana alluded to. But yeah, we think all of these types of dynamics are playing a role in, in what's happening in the markets right now. Great. And so um, do you think this is kind of short term in terms of the sentiment towards um, kind of like less optimism? Or do you think we're going to kind of see a little bit more downward trend from these stocks across the, the year, Brandon? So in terms of trying to predict what might actually happen with the stocks of these businesses themselves in shorter periods of time, Again, we think the market is simply a voting machine in short periods of time, and we don't believe anyone is well positioned to consistently predict what will happen with share prices over shorter periods. So we feel that to the extent anyone is articulating that they're very confident that they know what will happen with share prices over the short term has some misguided confidence there. Now, if we take a step back and look at the businesses and not share prices, there, we have much stronger views for what should happen with certain businesses over longer periods of time. There are particular companies whose share prices have been hit quite hard recently, where we still have doubts of, of some degree as to the durability of their business models. There are other companies whose stocks have been hit quite hard, where we're quite confident that these will remain strong businesses for many years to come and their share prices over longer periods should rise as their business performance continues to, to strengthen and grow over longer periods. So it's really a case by case basis at the end of the day, you really have to, we think, zoom in 
on the particular company that you might have questions about and, and talk more about specifically for that business, what its value proposition is, what are its competitive advantage, what are its growth opportunities, what are the key risks for that business going forward and really make an assessment on a case-by-case -case basis that way. Tatiana, what do you think? Do you think um, the tech stocks are gonna see a bit more downward momentum as we do see that kind of growth to, to value rotation we've been talking about? Or do you think it's gonna be a bit more, um, some are gonna win and some are gonna lose? So I think first of all, uh, what is very important is, is that we need to differentiate you know, between um, you know, those tech stocks that have corrected most, you know, like, I mean, it already started like end of last year and, and it continued you know, like in January. And these were kind of the more, let's say, more grossy, smaller type of tech stocks. But then we also have, and this is actually much more of our concern, uh, we have these, uh, you know, what we call the mega cap uh, tech stocks. And, um, and so, you know, these have experienced this huge momentum over the last year. So you could really see, you know, them um, growing at an extreme pace um, over the last seven, eight years. Um, and, you know, when looking at this and, and their dominating uh, role that they have today in, in cap-weighted indices, we see then that, you know, in fact, um, you know, when Meta uh, corrected um, last week, you burn actually uh, as much value, you know, as uh, like a large tech uh, S&P company uh, values. And, um, and so basically what this means is, is that for me, the, the biggest risk is actually what happens, you know, with the valuations of these big companies. And so far, um, I mean, we've seen what happened with uh, Meta. Um, and uh, for the other uh, big tech stocks, we don't know uh, when you know, this inflection point is going to come for them as well, because they're to some extent condemned to stay ahead of the crowd. Uh, their valuations signal to us that um, actually what is value today in their prices is not today's earnings, but um, to a very large extent, future earnings. So they, they look to you like high quality stocks you know, with very solid financials and so on. Uh, but still, you know, um, the relations, they, they clearly um, show you that long-term growth expectations go into them. And, uh, and these might change, you know, uh, whenever they don't manage to um, over and over again, uh, convince investors, you know, that they will stay ahead of the crowd. And, and if you look back into, in time, you know, like in 2000, uh, companies like IBM, Cisco Systems, Intel Corp, General Electric, I mean, these were really the darlings of Wall Street. And nobody would have thought that, you know, today, actually, they come down from a weight of about like 4%, roughly, they come down to 0.5% today. And uh, I mean, it's not like they went bankrupt, but they just lagged behind the market. And, um, and if, you know, this kind of mean version in valuations happens, then I think it would be very painful to a lot of investors, because today, many investors, um, they have accumulated a lot of this type of risk in their portfolios. Yeah. If I, if I can just uh, respond for a moment, those are some really good points made in there, Tatiana. Um, one, one nuance I would wanna highlight is, you know, I talked about before how it's important to be discerning and really work on a case-by-case -case basis when thinking about your views for companies going forward. And I think that applies to the larger companies as well. So for example, if you look at some of the companies that have the largest weights in the Russell 1000 growth index, which is an index that our portfolio gets compared to oftentimes. Valuations can vary dramatically for these larger companies. For example, Tesla has a large weight within the portfolio, 
And this is a company that's brought amazing innovation to the market, right? In terms of its electric vehicles and maybe what it's doing with solar energy and, and solar storage and could grow quite substantially in the future. But its valuation does assume many, many years of super strong growth that we think depends on, on factors such as whether they can bring an economy car to market at much lower price points, whether they can be very successful in their solar roof business. And they certainly have a reasonable path to doing that. We study this business very closely, but we don't think there's quite enough visibility into success in those areas yet, the way that we see it today. Now, there are other large companies with large weights that are valued very differently. So for example, Alphabet or Google, as many of us still refer to it, is another large weight within the Russell 1000 growth, but it's valued at something like a market multiple. So its valuation implies that its quality is roughly similar to the average company in the market. And we certainly don't believe that's true. When you look at the, the innovation and the strength of Google search, the competitive advantages that that product has, and then some of their other larger businesses as well, such as YouTube and their public cloud computing platform. So, you know, we think it's equally important to be discerning among larger companies, just like all, all companies. So um, that's, that's the first nuance that I wanted to highlight there. And then the second one is every company that we invest in is valued in a way that requires you to pay a multiple of the, the company's current earnings and free cash flow. So there is some assumption in, in all cases that the company will continue to earn free cash flow going forward. So there is some amount of forecasting, if you will, that goes into making these investments. But <clears throat> I wouldn't subscribe to the notion that, that all forecasting implies risk. So for example, coming back to Google search, I think based on the ability for Google search to very quickly in milliseconds, provide us great answers to almost any question that we have with great accuracy at no cost to us, is one of the greatest innovations of our time and feels superior to searching for information in other ways. So yes, we have to forecast that people will likely want to continue to search for information in similar ways over the next five years, but that doesn't seem like much of a leap of faith based on what this understanding what this innovation is and understanding how people wanna interact with this type of technology. So one, I think you always have to be discerning no matter what, as you go from company to company. And two, not all forecasting is created equal. And the way that we like to forecast is based on what's already in place now. And having this firm conviction that based on what's already in place now makes it highly, highly likely that this type of business, this type of behavior should persist, not only over the next five years, but, but well into the future. Great, thanks, Brendan. Sure. Um, so Tatiana, what do you kind of think investors should be doing um, given your concerns about uh, the, the kind of tech stocks and some of those bigger names in the S&P? Well, so our portfolio construction is really based on, um, you know, a, a mathematical definition of diversification. So we can actually measure diversification and it's, it's largely based on the idea, you know, that you want to have as many risk drivers as possible um, you know, in your portfolio, uh, because in the end of the day, um, as an investor, if you take um, if you take a risk, you're going to be compensated for it. And so the challenge is actually, um, you know, that that you should be exposed, like like an insurance company. You know, so you build your portfolio, um, you try to um, get as many different types of risks as possible that are, you know, as independent of each other as possible into your portfolio. You start harvesting 
um, you know, premium for uh, the risk that you're taking. And then maybe at some point, you know, you will have an insurance case at some, you know, in some place of your portfolio, but it's actually not going to matter that much because you have already accumulated premium and uh, the rest of your portfolio is going to counteract. And, and so that's pretty much our investment philosophy. And, um, and that is, you know, why actually um, in our portfolios, for instance, you will not find, you know, this huge bias to um, those mega cap tech stocks uh, but we will find you will find instead some sort of um, true market premium actually. So we try to represent you know the equity risk premium as an investor would like to to have in its portfolio. And um, and by this mean you know we try to cut across the cycle. And and from a long term perspective, it makes actually a lot of sense because it, it you know it allows you to avoid you know all the volatility that comes with making a bet on a company being maybe wrong, um, having to you know kind of. Um, having to be exposed to different cycles and so on. So everything we do is we really provide, you know, the true market premium um, that the investor can harvest. Um, and then, you know, I mean, if you may have some conviction or not, you can you can bet on this if you want. But uh, but we believe that, especially you know, when we talk about markets um, like the US market today, that you know is probably relatively efficient at least in the longer run. Um, we believe it's very hard actually to have the crystal ball and and to say you know this is really going to be the better stock or, or this is going to be the better company and so on. And all that matters is actually these, you know, these large risk factors that drive returns that make stocks move over time differently. And uh, and it, it is this that needs to be harvested. And, and then in the end of the day, what particular stock is in your portfolio or not is not really going to matter that much. So, and Brandon, so obviously um, one of the big kind of concerns around the tech stocks is that concentration risk um, within the S&P. And you've kind of mentioned a few names that, that you like and maybe some that you don't. And so how do you kind of um, determine how many of those names to hold and how does that kind of represent in your portfolio? What kind of percentage are they making up? Sure. So, you know, first, I would like to say that we believe that there is a role for diversified portfolios to play. We recognize the realities of the world and that not everyone has the time to study companies very closely. And there's also a lot of experience and, and judgment that goes into being able to really understand what these companies do and how they're positioned going forward. So, so we recognize the role that diversified portfolios can play there. And we also recognize that broader indices can have flaws. They are market cap weighted. Once a company becomes large within the index, there are so many assets that are tracking these indices in ways that can allow the, large, the already large companies to remain larger without regard to the fundamentals of the company and potentially keep smaller weights within indices small, again, without regard to the fundamentals of these businesses. So we recognize that the indices themselves can have some structural flaws as well. And that if you might want to take a diversified approach, there can be a better way to do that. So I don't know, I'm, I'm just getting a little bit familiar with what Tatiana does, but I can see, I can see the, the value um, in different ways there. Um, where, we, where we go in a different direction is we believe that if you have the time and you've had the experience to study businesses one by one very closely, <clears throat> it doesn't require a crystal ball and it's not rocket science to generally understand um, what these companies do and which ones are the few that are truly offering unique value to their customers in terms of what these customers are looking for and have dynamics around their business that make it very difficult for other companies to offer similar 
value going forward. These are the very businesses that we look for, the companies that we think are well positioned as far as the eye can see, and it can become much larger over time. And on top of that, there are other characteristics that we need to see for any business that we invest in, such as having real financial strength, the rock solid balance sheet, very strong free cash flow. These are the types of characteristics that can allow these companies to weather any type of storm, including COVID, because we recognize that there can be volatility in the world around us. We want these companies, we want to believe that these companies are protected even through the more challenging market environments that we experience. But we feel that if you're in a position to identify these types of companies, that's the, the route that you should go because that can allow you to avoid just being average. That can allow you to protect capital on behalf of your clients and allow that, that capital to grow quite, quite nicely over time. So we own in our portfolio roughly 25 businesses in our focus growth strategy today. The weight of these companies ranges from about 2% of the portfolio to in rare cases, maybe eight, nine, 10% of the portfolio for companies that we believe are not only exceptionally strong in their value propositions, competitive strength, but are also valued in a way that does not recognize at all that business strength in our view. But for all the companies that we own, we, we really wanna make that position count because we strongly believe that based on everything that's in place today with these companies, they have every opportunity to become much larger going forward. So as an example of that, I've already talked about Alphabet a little bit, but another great example that also qualifies as a large company within the index today is, is Amazon. And when you look at Amazon's retail business and how for what most people consider a fairly low price of now about $139 in, in the US and Western Europe, you can get most items delivered to you on their platform within two days and increasingly same day, or even in, in certain markets um, within a period of hours, that's considered great convenience for items that people are purchasing now. And what enables that great convenience is all the investments that Amazon's made over time into the, their fulfillment centers and other delivery and logistics operations, and also even into the software that makes it easier for us to, to find the items that, that matter to us. And, and that, that value proposition, showing us that we can get items delivered to us more conveniently, it's only attracted more merchants over time to want to list their items on Amazon's platform and want to house their goods within Amazon's fulfillment centers, which makes us as consumers only more willing to purchase on Amazon's platform. And from there, they've taken all the data centers and servers that they need, needed to build out to service all of us. And they've rented out their excess capacity there to many other businesses who also need data center and server capabilities. And that's formed their separate but now large Amazon Web Computing Services, AWS business, which is growing quickly, already large and a high margin. So we can study these businesses one by one, how they're positioned, and based on right now, understand how they should only become larger over time. And it's just a question of how much larger in our mind. So as we're forecasting, we only want to invest when we can assume that the business can grow conservatively based on our analysis and still allow for low levels of risk and strong appreciation going forward. We don't wanna to have to believe we have to make heroic assumptions. So that's where we would disagree that you need a crystal ball. We believe that you can see what's already in place for these companies now, how well positioned they are right now, how difficult it is for a company to replicate what this company is doing, and then only invest when you feel you can make conservative assumptions going forward 
for how the company is going to grow and still do quite well on, on behalf of your clients. Cool. Well, so I guess the, the main question for, for investors at the moment is um, given, I mean, both of you have quite different methodology and different views. Um, what kind of tweaks, if any, have you made to the strategies um, in the past, I guess, few months since the end of last year when we have seen some of these shifts in markets and sentiment? Um, Tatiana, have you guys made any changes? Well, um, I mean, we didn't have to change our model because, um, again, no, um, what we do is not based on conviction, um, but it's really based on the fact you know, that we're looking for stocks that are very lowly correlated to each other. Um, so if you want, this strategy has not changed uh, ever since. But um, but if you want, what you can see, obviously, in our model is, is that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of... Um, uh, you know, if Meta, for instance, uh, sings now uh, over the last couple of days, I mean, this is something that that is, you know, our, our model is pretty robust to this, so, so we're not very much affected by this. And um, and then obviously, you know, um, I mean, just coming back to this this notion of, you know, factors and, and risk factors and so on, I mean, I fully acknowledge, you know, that, um, you know, um, Amazon, for instance, uh, I mean, they had these kind of super great numbers that they just, uh, you know, published. But it's again, it's just creating a bigger problem for them because um, you know investors will expect them to deliver again and again this kind of thing. And uh, so, um, why would I have to be explicitly you know exposed to Amazon rather than you know the kind of general let's say e-commerce factor, you know, or the kind of general consumer um, global consumer trend, you know, so which is sort of the general risk factor that you actually want to take advantage of rather than taking you know, the idiosyncratic risk of Amazon because. You know, if I just remember last year, we had um, a couple of um, antitrust actions, you know, that actually threatened the company in the US, in Europe. And we've seen what happened to Alibaba all of a sudden, you know, when the Chinese state decided um, to go very hard um, against them. And so what we think is, is very important is, is that, um, you know, you kind of, you're not actually um, dependent on idiosyncratic company risk, but you're actually trying to, to expose yourself to the sort of general common factor um, and, and, you know, e-commerce, for instance, yes, this might be a topic, you know, going forward that is also driving markets, um, but is it going to be particular Amazon? Is it going to be other companies? So I think it's, it's important, um, you know, to kind of, um, to kind of look into this. And, um, and so our, our model is going to pick up, you know, these kind of themes um, and it's going to react to this and it's going to try to expose you always uh, in the same way, you know, to these broad drivers of the market. Gotcha. Brandon? Yes, yeah, so naturally when there's this much volatility in the market, we find that, that at least some of our companies get wrapped up into different narratives that we might not subscribe to. So for example, coming into this year, we've been investors in Visa and MasterCard, digital payments companies for several, several years. And we saw these companies getting wrapped up into the narrative that as consumers find new ways to pay, through recent innovations such as buy now, pay later, which allows people to pay for items in equal installments instead of all up front, or increasingly the ability to pay through cryptocurrencies. There was this narrative that Visa and MasterCard's offering and their technology would no longer be appropriate for handling transactions and helping to process those types of transactions. But as we continued to do our research, we felt the opposite was, was true. Whether it's buy now, pay later, cryptocurrencies, for example, we believe cryptocurrencies can flourish without impacting Visa MasterCard's value proposition at all of allowing consumers and merchants to transact safely, 
securely and quickly all over the world in real time across different currencies, et cetera. So we use that as an opportunity to increase our position there. And now, as I think you've had more of an opportunity this year to see those companies present their latest business results, you can see increasingly, in fact, that their business performance can continue on despite some of these evolutions in how people want to pay. So we're taking advantage of some of those types of opportunities. And then just to go back a little bit to this notion of you know, a, a business like Amazon, it's true that when they do produce business results in a particular quarter that are surprising to the upside for the broader market, it can cause the stock to go up. And maybe that does bake in some higher expectations for the company, what the company needs to do going forward. But that doesn't mean that the company is all of a sudden overvalued. That all depends on what valuation looks for the business now and how conservatively that business might be expected to grow going forward. And for a business like Amazon, despite the fact that the stock moved up on the most recent earnings report, when we look at conservatively how their first party retail business should grow, their third party retail business, their AWS public cloud computing business, their advertising business, their prime subscription revenue business, which is actually pure profit for them. We put all that together and conservatively say that valuation for this business does not appropriately reflect the, the level of growth that the company should experience over, over the coming years. So when it comes to the, the ability to either invest specifically in a company like Amazon within e-commerce or the whole e-commerce market, we, we certainly don't want to invest in the whole e-commerce market because naturally the whole e-commerce market collects it consists of companies that are well positioned at the very strong end, all the way down to companies that we don't think are differentiated at all. And if a, if a company isn't differentiated at all, and we can see that in our analysis, we just think we'd be exposing our clients to unnecessary risk by going in that direction. And an example I love to use is restaurants, because restaurants are businesses that most of us really know because we experience eating at restaurants. And I like to say, if, if you're a food connoisseur, and you've been eating at restaurants in your area for years and years, and you've come to understand which restaurants have great quality, great customer service, and experience levels overall, have motivated management teams that want to improve the experience over time, and you think offer great value for money, have high traffic coming through their restaurants. And then you also see all of the restaurants that we've all experienced too, right? that just aren't meeting customer expectations. The food quality is below expectations. Maybe management's complacent. You can see that there really isn't anyone frequent, frequenting those, those restaurants. If you had the opportunity to invest in all restaurants or just some, I think most of us would logically say we at least want to exclude, exclude those that are very clearly weak to us based on our understanding of those restaurants that we've experienced. We invest in all types of businesses beyond retail, including software businesses and healthcare companies and other types of, of retail businesses, et cetera. But that's the way that we approach it. We go from business to business. We study them for what they are. What are they offering their customers? Which are the few that we come across consistently that seem to be very unique in terms of what they offer their customers? Which ones have initiatives in place that are really designed to amplify that value that they're delivering to stakeholders and are designed to mitigate those negative consequences that inevitably flow from the business as it grows over time. And critically, which ones have dynamics around them? 
whether it's a recurring product or services service that customers want to come back to, sticky products and services that customers don't want to move away from once they've spent the time and the money getting to understand those products, network effects around the business, a unique brand, et cetera. So which ones also had the competitive advantages that make it very difficult for other, other businesses to offer similar value over time? And we want to stick to investing in those companies, both to lower risk overall on behalf of our clients and allow our clients' capital, their assets, to appreciate nicely over longer periods. And we've been doing this for a while, over more than three decades now. And if you look at our, our performance over time, that's that's what's what's happened. The, the risk profile has been quite low, especially when you look at how our portfolios perform during challenging economic periods going all the way back. And We've, we've certainly been proud of how we've allowed clients to participate to the upside over a long period. So that's how we approach it. Cool. Um, well, I am conscious of time. So I guess final thoughts from each of you on kind of what we should be expecting um, as we go through the rest of this year and what looks to be quite volatile markets. Um, Tatiana, what were your final thoughts? Well, I think, um, you know, an environment where we have so many uncertainties about, you know, what politics are going to do, what monetary policy is going to do. Um, I think, you know, uh, an environment where we are really at an inflection point um, where probably something is going to happen that we haven't seen before, because this, this is, uh, you know, what usually is the case. So history uh, very, very rarely repeats itself. I think it's even more important, you know, to kind of acknowledge that uh, probably it will be hard to, to really know, you know, who's going to be the winner, who's going to be the loser. And, um, and so I think it's really important to, to stick to an approach, you know, that tries to limit idiosyncratic risks, so company-specific risks, and it tries to really sort of tell you, okay, let's try to keep it broad, let's try to expose yourself, you know, to the main risk drivers in the market that will eventually, you know, kind of help you to harvest the risk premium um, of the equity market, of the bond market, and so on and so forth. Um, and so I think this is really important because um, probably you will be just caught on the wrong foot um, if you're making big bets in, in this kind of uh, market environment. Um, and, uh, and so at least, you know, for part of your portfolio, you should consider to um, get away from these huge um, risk um, extremes, you know, um, that, that actually cap-weighted indices have accumulated and a lot of managers have accumulated as well that kind of follow those indices because they are benchmarked against them. Um, and generally speaking, I think um, you know um, a lot of managers they're not really looking at the risk exposures of their of their portfolios, and hence they're a little blind to you know what has actually accumulated over time. And uh, and so I think it's really time to, to reconsider this as an investor um, and uh, and to reposition the portfolio accordingly. Brilliant, thank you, Brandon. Final thoughts. Yeah, first off, thank you, Kathleen and Tatiana, for arranging this. This has been really fun. I, I would say that we believe the world around us is always going to be a complicated, unpredictable place, whether it's inflation or changes in the interest rate environment or trade wars between countries like the US and China or actual wars or health crises like COVID-19. There will always be things that feel like they come out of left field and shock us in different ways when it comes to the broader economy. But what we find so exciting is that in the markets we invest in, these are places that encourage and incentivize innovation, encourage talented entrepreneurs to develop the next products and services that will help solve our pain points as consumers and businesses. And we find that companies that are the most successful in developing these types of products 
of products and services that can solve our pain points in different ways are best positioned to grow, grow their consumer base, grow their employee base, grow on behalf of all involved stakeholders, and are the ones that are well positioned to not only grow nicely during strong economic times, but are also best positioned to weather the difficult economic periods. So that's what motivates us at Poland Capital to find these special companies that are delivering unique innovation on behalf of their stakeholders, including their customers, and invest strictly in those types of businesses and avoid investing in the companies that aren't differentiated, that aren't offering unique value propositions, that don't have those competitive advantages, because we think that's where risk is introduced. So we look to avoid those types of companies that we think introduce risk and only invest in the special businesses that we think have lowest levels of risk attached to them and also allow clients to participate to the upside. Brilliant. Well, thank you both so much um, for a really interesting discussion. And I guess time will tell how the rest of the year plays out. <laughs>